John chapter 14, as we sit here in this chapter, John chapter 14, we've been in it now for several teachings. Uh, this will be the last one for now in John 14. And uh, I, I came at it earlier this week thinking, you know, I don't know, I, Bible teachers, I've, I've got weird things that run through my head. And, and one of them was, that, you know, we'll just kind of clean up now because we've done a couple of Sunday mornings in John 14, and we're going to do now the rest of John 14, verses 21 through 31. And so that phrase, just clean up, was, was in my mind. And then I got into studying it, and uh, this isn't just clean up. There is much here. As Jesus, on the night of his betrayal, as we've been seeing, is teaching and talking to and encouraging and comforting his disciples, we're into these words and promises of Jesus. On that troubling night, and he begins with faith. Remember that he said, do not let your heart be troubled. Singular heart, do not, a command, do not let your heart be troubled. How, Lord, believe in God, believe also in me. So he begins with faith. He calls upon their faith. And then, as you recall, he promises rooms in his father's house. And he says, he says he'll come to receive you. He says, I'll receive you to myself, which is an obvious and clear reference to the rapture of the church. He plainly goes on to present his oneness with the Father. Remember, he, he said, he who has seen me has seen the Father in verse 9. Profound statements of absolute truth. He says that we will do greater works in his name as we continue loving him and keeping his commandments, which we talked about last week, go hand in hand. You love him, you're gonna keep his commandments because it's an outgrowth of your love for him. You will naturally keep his commandments if you love him. If you don't love him, why would you keep his commandments, right? And so it's the two together, and as we love him, as we keep his commandments, as we follow after him and seek even to be like him, we will do, Jesus says, greater works in his name. That is in complete harmony and alignment with Jesus. Well, then in verse 16 and 17, Jesus comes to another helper. Because of the first 15 verses, as wonderful as the words are, as encouraging and comforting as they may be, they still leave us wondering, how in the world can we do this? How are we capable of doing what he's commanded us to do and invited us to do, and we realize another helper? That word alone, another helper, alone, parakleton, another helper, a meaning of the same kind as himself. And that word parakleton we looked at on Sunday, meaning helper and comforter and strengthener, which is significant. It's not just a helper. It's not just like a kitchen aid. This is a strengthener and our advocate. And immediately he says in verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now, before we go any further, there are a couple of promises here we didn't address last week. First of all, there's a spiritual promise. A spiritual promise. I will not leave you as orphans. I'm not just gonna leave you here. We've come too far for that. And as you step into faith in Jesus, he does not leave you as an orphan. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 18 says he executes justice for the orphan and the widow. Early on in Torah, we see that the orphans and the widows are, are really at the heart of God. 
Psalm 68, verse 5, says he's a father of the fatherless. And a judge for the widows is God in his holy habitation. God makes a home for the lonely. Now, this word orphan, this spiritual promise, I will not leave you as orphans. The word orphans, literally in the Greek is, write this down, you're going to want to know this, orphanos. <laughs> Just add an OS and you've got it. That's where we get the word orphan. We get it actually from the Greek language, orphanos, which translates fatherless, comfortless, bereft, or helpless. It's a spiritual promise because he promises us the helper in our helplessness. He will not leave us helpless. He sends the helper. He will not leave us bereft and grieving. He will send the helper as he's just promised. In the ancient world, the orphan and the widow were literally the helpless. That's how they were viewed. But we are not to be left helplessly bereft. We have the parakleton, the helper. I um, today had the, I would say the privilege of joining the, the Mikos and Frost families uh, for the graveside service for Matt Micus, actually. I say Mikos because I'm thinking Hebrew. Matt Micus. And uh, tomorrow is the memorial, and you're all invited to that to come back. It's at 11 o'clock in the morning. And it was, it was tough. It was tough. Um, and which, which is really a kind of a selfish thing for me even to say because I was just the bystander. But I watched the family together. And the reason why I say it was a privilege for me to be there was to see them love each other. And to see the immense encouragement and support in a time of being completely bereft, in a time of feeling helpless, in a time of grieving. And I heard them calling on the name of Jesus. And I heard them encouraging one another in the name of Jesus. And I saw there a comfort that this world does not know. And I thought to myself yet again, how do you go through this without Jesus? How do you lose someone so precious? How do you lose someone in life without knowing you're gonna see them again and Jesus will get you there? We are not bereft. I was looking at the children and I was thinking they're not bereft. They are not left. They are surrounded by a deep love, a, a strong family unit. And so are you and so am I. So were the disciples, even as Jesus spoke to them that night. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I won't let that happen. We have the parakleton, the helper. Romans 8.16 tells us the spirit, who is the helper, testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Not orphans, children of God. We belong to him. And that's a spiritual promise that Jesus began speaking on that night. And this has carried on for 2,000 years and is as significant and profound to your life and mine tonight as it was when he spoke it that night. I will not leave you as orphans. I am so thankful for that spiritual promise. And as with everything that we're studying tonight, I'm so thankful that when we open up the word of God, we're not op opening up empty words and casual phrases. This is not a self-help book. This is truth. 
This is spirit-given truth, and, and it makes such a difference for us to know that and understand that. We've, we read out of John 14 this afternoon. This is right where we went. Do not let your hearts be troubled. So, so the spiritual promise is I will not leave you as orphans. But secondly, there's a physical promise. I will come to you, he says. I will come to you. Verse 19, continuing, he says, after a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. In what day? Sunday. I will come to you. And he knows that his coming to them, this is now Thursday night, he knows his coming to them is going to be Sunday night. They don't know that. They don't know as they're watching their Lord crucified that he is just two and a half days, three days away at that point from coming right back, from coming to them, that they will see him. And you know what? We won't know when we're three days away either. We won't know. We'll, we'll wonder, we'll hope, I hope that you spend every day hoping. I hope you awaken every day loving his appearing, hoping, hoping that it's the day that we live with that kind of expectancy. But understand, three days away, the apostles didn't know. Three days away, we probably won't realize it either. But he's coming. He's coming. He came to them physically. It was a physical promise. I will come to you. And it's a physical promise to us as well. When we are caught up, we will meet him in the clouds. He will come to us. We will see him. Rick, you said that's a physical promise. I thought when we caught up, isn't that spiritual? You're gonna be glorified, body, soul, and spirit. All that you are right here. Now, it's gonna be a whole lot better, so you, know, you can look forward to that. It's an upgrade. You know, I'm gonna be Rick 2.0. Rick 2.0 eternal. So it'll be awesome, but it's still this full bodily resurrection. Just as Jesus was resurrected, so you and I will be resurrected. He gives a spiritual promise. I'm not leaving you as orphans so long as you're here and I'm there, but I will come to you, a physical promise. He guarantees it. And they would know it in what I call the realization of the resurrection. On Sunday morning, it began to affect them, began to impact them. Some believe, Mary Magdalene believed, the women believed, they ran to the apostles and said, we've seen him, the realization of his resurrection. And the apostles were like, no way, until they saw him. What a day that was. And, and you need to note this, just to be clear, when he says, I will come to you, he is not at that point talking about alone parakleton, another helper. He's talking about himself in the flesh, in his post-resurrection appearances. I will come to you. He's speaking literally. This is a new favorite word of my son, David. Everything is literal. I'm literally not kidding. I mean, he says it like every day, 24-7. Jesus literally came to them. I, I remind you of what he says in John 16, 22. Therefore, you two have grief now, but I will see you again. And your heart will rejoice. What happened when they saw him? Well, at first they didn't believe. But once they believed, once they knew it to be him, your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you. And I submit to you that that is what maintained their witness the rest of their lives. They saw him. They knew him as resurrected and it filled them with a joy that lasted them throughout and right on into eternity. 
So on this night, what's happening here is Jesus is saying, do not let your heart be troubled, is he's saying, bros, it's not over. By tomorrow morning, they're going to all think it's over. But it's not over. In fact, things are just getting started. Verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Literally, verse 21, this is what, what we would call the, the present active participle when he says, he who has my commandments and keeps them, both has and, and keeps are in the present active participle, so it would translate like this. He who is, who is having my commandments and is keeping them. He who's having my commandments, not just who has, not like you just got it once 10 years ago, but is having. He who is having my commandments, continually taking in, in a present, active, ongoing participation, he who is having my commandments and is keeping my commandments. But some would say, I'm not having it. I'm not having it. Sometimes people will say that with defiant words. Sometimes they will speak it in quiet deeds. I'm not having it. If you are not having his commandments, then you really don't love him. And this is that dynamic of commandments and love, love and commandments. If you keep his commandments, it shows you love him. If you're not keeping his commandments, you don't really love him. Listen, Jesus is not a game player here. I'm going to use the word religion, but I don't want you to think religion in terms of Christianity. I want you to think religion in, in terms of the world systems. That there are all kinds of, atheism is a religion because it's a belief system. It's a belief that there is no God, which by the way is an impossible belief because the only way to believe that is to have been everywhere at once. Otherwise, while you were in Montana, he might have been in Denver and you just missed him. But belief systems and religions and the way that people go to these directions, Jesus is calling his apostles and he calls to you and me to live out a dynamic, authentic relationship, not a set of rules, not a list of requirements, because that's how the world distances itself from God. Now that might sound odd to you having just heard that if we love him, we'll keep his commandments. So aren't there commands involved here? Aren't there rules involved? Not as such. Because the commandments of Jesus Christ are not burdensome. In fact, if you love God and you love your neighbor as yourself, the entire law and the prophets hangs on that. It hangs on love. To love is to want to serve, to want to do all the things that he says because what he says is good and it's life-giving. It fills us with hope. It gives us purpose and meaning. What Jesus says, these are the commandments of God. These are good for us. These are healthy, spiritually, physically, emotionally. And he hands us the commandments and, and says, I want you to do these because I know how you tick. I know how you think. And I know how this will work in your life, in your sanctification. But it's not about just keeping a set of rules. That's religion, and that is how the world distances itself from God. We'll just keep the rules. We'll check the boxes. We'll do these certain requirements, 
and we'll get to this state of nirvana or we'll get to this place of, of peace. We'll work ourselves into that area. Listen, Christianity is not about works. The commandments are not about works. You can't do enough. You can't keep enough. You can't work hard enough to get yourself into heaven. It's all relationship. And God, by his grace, has saved us. And in our salvation and recognizing we have eternity, then we say, wow, I want to do what he asked me to do. Not to get there, but because while I'm here, it will affect and change me. It will make me more like Jesus. But you may recall our friend J.N.I., Judas not Iscariot, himself a close personal friend and follower of Jesus is trying to work this out. And I love the little, the little inserts of the apostles on this night, the little questions that they ask here and there. As Jesus is teaching, you know, sheepishly, one will raise a hand and, and, and ask something. And along comes Judas, not Iscariot, and he's trying to figure out the new, the new relationship that he's talking about. What is this new arrangement? What do you, how, does this, how is this supposed to work, Jesus? He says in verse 22, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world. Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. That is future active. So he will keep keeping my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. And I told you before, abode here is the second of two times that the noun form of this word abode is used. Two times, it's both here, we will make our abode with him, and it's back in verse um, two. In my father's house are many dwelling places or abodes. It's the same exact word used in both places, and in other words, what Jesus is saying is we have rooms to dwell in the father's house then, and he wants to dwell or abide in your heart now. So there's an abiding, there's a dwelling right now, him in our hearts, even as we will dwell with him in the Father's house then. So right now, what Jesus is saying to Judas, not Iscariot, is he's saying, I want to book a room in your heart. I'm making reservations, Jay and I, Thaddeus. I'm making reservations to dwell in your heart. And then he clarifies the terms of the booking. Verse 24, he who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. The word which you hear is from the Father who sent me. My friends, you could say the book sets the booking. The book is the basis of the booking. That is Jesus booking a room, booking space in your heart, in my heart to dwell. The book is the source of the booking. That the words of Jesus are the words of God. We can't separate out the red letters. You understand that? Now, I love the red letters, and there's something, I don't know, very personal, I guess, about seeing, hearing Jesus actually speak these words, but understand that Jesus spoke in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The whole thing is spoke by the Spirit of God. The whole thing, Peter tells us, was given to the prophets by the Spirit of Christ within them. These are all Jesus' words. Some would separate them out. Some make the comment, I like Jesus, but it's just the God of the Old Testament I don't like. 
I'm okay with Jesus' comments. I just don't like the other stuff. There are certain verses, certain expectations, certain moral proclivities that I don't want to have. Any, I'm not having it, they'll say. I don't want that stuff. Remember verse 21. He who is having and is keeping my commandments. But again, some say, I'm not having it. And to that, Paul says in Romans 1.32, Although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. And he's talking about specific immorality in the world. In fact, the discussion that Paul gets into in Romans chapter 1 would indict this country in very serious ways, would indict the media, would indict the movies and the books and the things that we take in and what's on TikTok and on Instagram and all the social media, God's morality, as Paul discusses in Romans chapter one, would indict the whole thing. And he finishes that chapter saying, not only do they do these things, things worthy of death, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. If we love Jesus, we're going to keep this word, all of this word. If we love him, we will continually be having his commandments, keeping his word, pouring over them, thinking through them, applying them, obeying them. This is the standard. I, I, I know I'm preaching to the choir, but I got to preach to someone. I understand that we know this, but this is the standard of our lives. It's greater than any and all human law, human culture, human societal norms, no matter what those societal norms are. This word is true. And I, as life goes on and as time winds closer and closer to the end of the age, I feel like just by saying that, I'm out on the fringe. But this is the standard. If you love me, you will be having my commandments. It's just the way it is. I love the Lord, therefore I love his word. I must love his word. And in verse 25, Jesus says, these things I have spoken while abiding with you in person. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Jesus says this amazing thing, we, and we talked about that, I know, on Sunday, but he says, I'm with you now, but after I'm physically gone, the Holy Spirit, in perfect sameness with the Father and with me, will abide within you if we'll have him, if we'll receive him, if we'll invite him. But this part still intrigues me. Our part in the whole thing uh, let, me, let me put it to you this way. Why not just open the heavens and let the world see God as he is? Why this process that we have now been taken through, a process that began 6,000 years ago, ran all the way through the people of Israel and God showing himself to the world through Israel, interacting with Israel, dealing with Israel, and then ultimately coming through Israel in the flesh himself to move among people in the world to let them see him in the person of Jesus, only then to be crucified, resurrected, ascended to heaven, and then to pour his spirit out on us for the last 2,000 years that we might live with him within us. Why all of that? Why not just pop open the heavens and say, here I am? The most obvious answer 
is that if God did that, if he just showed up, the world would blow apart. We would not handle it. Not just not handle it well, we would not exist through it. The children of Israel, they just heard the voice of God and literally freaked out. They couldn't handle just listening. Exodus chapter 20, verse 19, they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we'll listen, but let not God speak to to us or we will die. They were terrified at the deep, rumbling, booming sound of his voice from the top of the mountain. That was just hearing his voice. And, and you know when Moses himself said, said, Lord, show me your glory. What, what a bold thing to say. But God said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you. The goodness of God we just sang about. Exodus 33, 19, I will proclaim the name of the Lord, the name of Yahweh before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6, verse 16, he alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. So the very simple answer to the question, why didn't God just show up on day one or maybe show up in the days of Noah when things had gotten out of control? Just show up and go, hey, listen, I'm your God, you're my people, let's get this right. They all would have died. It would have been over. God knows this of his own power. There there was a rabbi in the 12th century, a famed Spanish-Jewish philosopher named Rabbi Yehuda. And he wrote a book, and I know you're all gonna go home and look it up, called the Sefer HaKazari. And in the Kazari, he writes the following, and I love this. Of that divine glory mentioned in the scripture, there is one degree which the eyes of the prophets were able to explore, Another which all the Israelites saw as the cloud and the consuming fire. The third is so bright and so dazzling that no mortal is able to comprehend it. But should anyone venture to look on it, his whole frame would be dissolved. I like that. That's a good description. No one can look at me, can look on my face as God the Father and live. Which is why in John 1.18, John wrote, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Jesus explains God. Which is why, again, Jesus said back in verse 9, he who has seen me has seen the Father. God made a way for us to be able to see, experience, and know him without it killing us. So that's, that's part of why God's gone through this whole this exercise and why now he pours the Holy Spirit out on us. But there's, there's another reason for this divine plan. Another reason that he first sent Jesus and now sends his spirit into and upon his followers on you and in me. And that is simply this. There's something God wants to get across. And that is that divine intimacy is known and experienced in loving obedience. Divine intimacy, to have intimacy with God is best experienced in loving obedience. The more I love him, the more I obey him, the more intimate my relationship with him. He's doing something awesome here. He's teaching us something great. If you turn back to John chapter five real quickly. John chapter five As Jesus was speaking at that time, verse 19,
he explains by saying, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does in like manner. So he's acting in perfect unity with the father. But he says, for the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself is doing and will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. Let's get back to chapter 14 and look at verse 10. John 14, verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. And again down in verse 20. In that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. It's all about intimacy. The whole point, the whole exercise from coming in the flesh to now giving his spirit to us is that we can begin to grasp and comprehend what God's looking for. And that is not a bunch of yes men in heaven. He's looking for people who will know him intimately. People who will come before him and worship in relationship with him and in nearness to him. It's relationship lived out. Just as Jesus loved the Father, let people see you love him over all others and over all other things. If you struggle with any of the commandments of Jesus, any of the, the, the morals or values of scripture, go back to the love of Christ. Let the world see you love him. If you walk out of here, and, and I, I often talk about evangelism for lack of a better word, telling people about Jesus, sharing your faith. The time is short. We've got to share family members and brothers and sisters and, and friends and mothers and fathers and kids. We've got to share Jesus. And sometimes I know you might walk out of here and go, I'm not very good at that. And then you come back the next week and you haven't told anyone. You're like, I'm just not very good at that. Would you stop trying to be good at evangelism and just love Jesus? The more we focus on loving Jesus, the more we're going to, we can't help it. We're going to talk about him. We're going to share him because we love him. Not because we've taken a course on how to share him. How silly. I don't have to take a course on how to talk about my wife to friends. It's not difficult. Someone mentioned Cheryl, says something about Cheryl. I got all kinds of things I can share about her because I adore her. That's easy. I didn't have to take Cheryl explosion to teach people how to, you know, to be evangelical regarding my wife. It's the same thing with Jesus. Love Jesus. Give your heart to Jesus. Follow after Jesus. Listen to Jesus. Pray to Jesus. And when you're out in the world and when you're talking with people, Jesus is going to slip out. You're going to share him because you love him. And with that, can I just encourage you? Don't equivocate. Don't shun his word. Don't act all embarrassed to mention the name of Jesus. I don't care what society says. This is not a private religion. This is a personal relationship. If you love him, live that way. This is what he's saying to the apostles. If you love me, live that way. And I'm gonna pour my spirit out into you. I'm gonna dwell within you. And I will empower you in all these things. And by the way, the more you love him and the more you obey him, the more rich and full and satisfying your Christian life will be. It just gets better and better. 
It gets to where I long to be here on Wednesday night so that we can share and worship in the word together. Now, I, I, I love you all, but it's not because of you all that I want to come here on Wednesday night. It's because I know what Jesus is going to say. And I know I get to experience, I don't know, I, I, have, I just have so much peace when we gather together and we begin to worship. And we get into his word and we pray together. That's our love for him. And Jesus wants us to live it out. I got some notes here somewhere, I know. It, it, only, only when we love him, though, will we really begin to live peace. It's not this elusive thing that's out there somewhere if we could just find it. It's in loving him that the peace comes. Look at verse 27 again. Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled. And he adds, nor let it be fearful. See, this is the yield of the Holy Spirit in you, in me, peace. It's one of the ways you know the Spirit is in you. You know the Spirit is at work because you have peace. You're not striving, you're not stressed. Oh, so does that mean if I'm striving or stressed, I don't have the Spirit? No, no, it just means I'm ignoring him. <laughs> it means maybe I'm unaware of him in the moment. I'm letting my flesh win that day. But his Spirit brings peace. Remember, remember Isaiah's prophetic promise. I want to go over it again. We've heard this. We've talked about it. Isaiah 26, verse 3, the steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Right? You remember from Sunday, perfect peace is shalom, shalom. So it's a double portion of peace. When Jesus says, peace, I leave with you, he's talking about the shalom, shalom of Isaiah. He's talking about the double portion of peace and the world can't reproduce that. The world cannot offer that. The best that the world can give you, can give me, is, and note this down, a double shot of espresso. <laughs> now think about this. That's the best the world has to offer. What, what do you mean? I mean the world, I mean it's a, an appropriate contrast to the peace that Jesus gives. The world gives us, offers the philosophical equivalent of shots of espresso. Quips and concepts and notions to get us by for a time. You know, something to, to infuse some kind of energy that'll get me going at least to the end of the day or get me through this meeting or get me through that program. Just, just a shot. I just need a shot, man. And I'm good to go, but it always ends. It always burns out. And by the way, too many shots from the world and you don't get peace, you get anxiety. You get stressed. And the crash will come in the form of unanswered questions and fears and emptiness and exhaustion. This is what the philosophical constructs of the world do. Double shots of espresso. I love Mocha Joe's, and I'm not, I'm not doing a commercial for Mocha Joe's, but one of the things I love about Mocha Joe's is they put three shots in. So I know if I pop by Mocha Joe's, I'm going to be flying for the afternoon. But it always ends up crashing and burning. Or it keeps me awake at night fidgeting, you know? I mean, I'm 57. I've gotten to the point where if I drink caffeine after about four, I'm, I'm flying all night long. I don't need that. I need peace. My peace I give to you, Jesus. Not as the world gives do I give to you. And that's why Paul describes it as the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension. 
You can't get it any other way. You don't even understand why you're at peace in the midst of all that's going on in this world. How can we have peace? We have peace because it's a shalom, shalom. It's a double portion. It's, it's from Jesus. And it's constant because his peace, like Jesus, is the same yesterday and today and forever. And I love the, the way that the word breaks this down for us because this peace that he promises, first it comes through Jesus. You don't get it any other way or from any other person. It comes through Jesus. Romans 5.1, Paul says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So he brings that peace. Without Jesus, you don't have peace with God. If you don't have peace with God, your life will be stressed and harried and anxious. But now through Jesus, we have peace with our creator. He has made peace where once there was none. And so the peace comes through Jesus, but secondly, the peace is Jesus. We're told in Ephesians 2.14, he himself is our peace. Colossians 3.15, Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And in John 16.33, at the end of this whole discussion, Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. Where? In me. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I've overcome the world. So he offers peace and says, do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. And up to this point, how can we not let our hearts be troubled? How can we not let our hearts be fearful? Well, he's just given us all of these things we can do, beginning with faith, beginning with loving him, and going on to keeping his commandments. And then he says, I'll pour my spirit into you. All of this works together for peace. Peace. Verse 28. You heard that I said to you, I go away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father. For the Father is greater than I, and hold it right there. This is a favorite verse in the arsenals of Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. The Father is greater than I. And they'll point to that because they have certain verses that have been cherry-picked out of the Bible as as part of their way of, of attacking your faith and mine of attacking just simple biblical truth. They want to get in there and undermine it, and so there are certain verses that they learn, and this is one of them. The Father is greater than I, they'll say. See, look, Jesus himself said the Father is greater than I. And Jehovah's Witnesses aren't the only ones, or Mormons, others, other cults. I, I said recently that the cultist is on a mission to diminish or deny Jesus. That is at the heart of every cult, to diminish or deny Jesus Christ as one with the Father. And so they'll, they'll undermine that. They want to deny the divine nature of Jesus. Now, to do that, you have to, number one, not read the Bible. All the Bible. You have to pick out part of a verse and, and try to piece together your own theology, which is, by the way, horrible theology. And I speak that across denominations. It is bad theology to take one verse and base your entire faith on that one verse. It's the whole counsel of the word of God. We take it all together because all together it is explained to us. But you can take one line. I could do the same thing. I could say the Bible proves that there is no God. Did you know that? You look in the Psalms, it says there is no God. 
Now, I left out the part that says the fool said in his heart there is no God. But I can just pull a, a little piece out here and there. The Father is greater than I. Well, they haven't read the Bible, and they certainly haven't read John's gospel. As we've been going through, the entire gospel of John is about revealing the deity of Jesus Christ. He who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus just said that, right? So this perfect unity and equivalence of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that just moments ago he declared that, so all of a sudden right here, when Jesus says, for the Father is greater than I, you've got to read it and understand it in the context of what he's saying. If he just said, he who has seen me has seen the Father, and now he's saying the Father is greater than I, how does that work? How do we fit that together? Paul wrote in Titus 2.13 that the grace of God instructs us to be looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul thought Jesus was God. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter wrote, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter thought Jesus was God. And John wrote in 1 John 5, 20, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who, are, who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Who's true God? Jesus is true God. So John believed that Jesus is God. So what can Jesus mean here when he says, the Father is greater than I? And I'll just give you two things to note on this. Two things to understand. The answer is both about place and position. Place and position. Number one, the father is greater, was greater. I should say the father was greater in terms of place. Because when Jesus said this, in that very moment, from the father's glory to the son's humanity, God was greater. Right? I mean, that's, that's clear and simple. Jesus was limited by flesh. God was not. God was greater. Jesus was God in the flesh, but God was greater simply in terms of place. By taking on flesh, Jesus limited himself in a way that God was not and has never been limited. So you could say God was greater. The Father is greater than I. And in context, Jesus is talking about here going to the Father, that is, returning to the sphere and the domain of his glory that he had left behind, that he had set aside. The Father's greater in terms of place. John 17, 5, Jesus is going to pray, now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. That glory that Jesus left behind. So just in terms of place, the Father's greater than Jesus when he speaks these words. But there's an even greater reason that Jesus says the Father is greater than I. It's the very reason that he took on flesh and that he became so humbled and it's something we have to grasp about God. And that is that the Father is greater in terms of position. The Father is greater in terms of position. Now, I'm not talking about Father and then Son, second person, and then Holy Spirit, third person, and they're lesser as you go down the line. That's not what we're saying. 
But the theological term for this is functional subordination. Functional subordination. Part of the reason the cults don't get this is because the cults are about power. It's about exerting power, your power, over another person. And that is not the way of Jesus. Listen, Jesus doesn't teach you and teach me to be humble because he thinks it's a good idea. Because he thinks, well, if I, if I can teach Andy to be a more humble man, that will be good for Andy. I'm not sure you could be more humble, my friend. That, that Jesus is saying, you know, Jake, if I could just get you to humble yourself for a change, it'd be good for Jake. And I'm picking on both of my humble brothers. Jesus doesn't tell us that we ought to be humble because he wants to somehow subdue the rebellion within us. Do you know why Jesus preaches humility? It's because he's humble. It's because that's who he is. For him to say the Father is greater than I, though he is one in the triune Godhead with God the Father and with God the Spirit, God the Son, all three equal, all three unified as one, three persons, one God, and yet he says the Father is greater than I because humility is part of the nature of God. It's something that we have trouble comprehending. Jesus emulates humbleness because it is his nature. Philippians chapter two, many of you are very familiar with this passage, but listen to it again. Paul explains this beautifully. Philippians chapter two, verse five, have this attitude in yourselves, which also was in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. It's not something to be grasped. By the way, that word grasped there, Philippians 2 verse 6, it's an interesting word, caught me off guard. It's harpagmon. Harpagmon. Does that sound familiar? Like harpazo? It's the same word. Harpazo is the word we have for rapture, to be caught up. But harpazo carries with it this idea of, of, a, of an instantaneous, almost violent, now don't worry, violence is probably not the best word, forceful, that the rapture of the church is going to be a forceful catching up, a just, shoom, we're gone. I mean, imagine the power it's going to take to lift every Christian off this planet and put us before Jesus in the clouds. That is a forceful, awesome power. Harpazo. Well, harpagmon from harpazo means, again, to be seized, or in this case, in this translation, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. It means a thing to be forcefully taken hold of. In other words, though it was Jesus' inherent, intrinsic right to be equal with the Father, Jesus let go of the right because he's humble, because that who, that's who he is. It's not difficult for God to be humble, for God to acquiesce to God, as it were. And in the incarnation, as Paul's describing here, Jesus intentionally laid aside that equality such that he could say, the Father's greater than I. He took a lower position for a time when he came to the earth. Paul says he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and that word bondservant is the lowest form of slave, a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, 
being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, the most humiliating death a human being could go through in the first century, and that's the death that Jesus came to die. What we remembered at communion, and as, as Jake put it, we proclaimed that death until he comes. Part of what we're proclaiming is his humility. That's the nature of Jesus. He, he puts his father before himself, by the way, in the same way the Holy Spirit puts Jesus before himself. This is the nature of God. Jesus glorifies the Father. The Holy Spirit exists in us and is with us to glorify the Son. I'll say more on this, maybe not this Sunday, but, but, but soon, that you know a church that is Spirit-filled because that church preaches Jesus, because that church glorifies Jesus, sings praise to Jesus, and honors Jesus, because that's what the Holy Spirit does. But isn't that amazing? Jesus glorifies the Father. The Spirit glorifies Jesus. And this is all within the Godhead. Amazing. Functional subordination. By the way, the same idea in a perfect scenario, the same idea of functional subordination exists in marriage. The idea of a husband and a wife and how they interact. And, and read, I'm not going to do it tonight, but read Ephesians 5 again and listen to how Paul discusses a husband's relationship to his wife, to love his wife as Christ loved the church and for the wife to serve the husband as head of the wife. And you read that and in our culture, oh, no way. But functional subordination says in, in this marriage situation, if we're really emulating Jesus and the church, then we're... We have a, we're okay with this. It's the same idea in the church between men and women, between leaders and servants. And I'm not saying men, leaders, women, servants. I'm saying between the way men and women function, the way leaders and servants function, we all function best in our roles when we seek to be humble, when we seek to put everyone else ahead of ourselves. Functional subordination. When I subordinate myself to you, out of love for Jesus because that's who he is. And in all of this, I might as well finish this out. For this reason also, God highly exalted him. So now God is exalting the son. Jesus said, the father's greater than I. Guess what God says? He highly exalts him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, guess what? To the glory of God the Father. All of this glory goes round and round, but it works because of functional subordination. It works because the very nature of God is humble. And that's why he calls us to be humble. And that's why Jesus says on this night, the Father, the Father is greater than I. Do back in verse 30 of chapter 14. No, verse 29. Verse 20, don't get ahead of me. Now I have told you before it happens so that when it happens, you may believe. And that's exactly, that's a great definition of what prophecy is all about. I've told you before it happens so that when it happens, you will believe. Prophecy is for the, for the function of faith. Biblical prophecy is for faith. That's what prophecy is about. It's not about ear tickling. It's not about fun. It's not about whoo. It is about 
faith. God says it, and then he does it so that we can see what he says is what he does. He, he means what he says and says what he means, and he does exactly what he said he would do. And so prophecy encourages and increases our faith. Back in Isaiah 46, verse 9, remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Prophecy is for faith. Look at what I've done, he says. Let me show you by what I've said and how I've fulfilled it that you can trust me. I love how they get into the discussion in Jerusalem. Over in Acts chapter 15, you may remember the story. In Acts 15, we read about what they call the council at Jerusalem. Paul's been out spreading grace and sharing about what Jesus came and did, and he's gone to the Gentiles. And so the Jerusalem church, the Jewish church is going, wait a minute, is this okay What do we do with all these Gentiles who are now coming to faith? I mean, on the one hand, it's pretty exciting. But on the other hand, hey, hold on a second. And they're debating and they're discussing. And James finally stands up and he says, Peter has related, it says Simeon, but Simeon is Peter. This is Acts 15, 14. Peter has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is is written, and he starts to quote Amos. After these things I will return. I will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen and rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it so that the rest of mankind, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. And there it is. James appeals to prophecy. We have it in God's word. We have it through the prophet Amos who spoke these things long ago and now we're seeing it happen. James was able to recognize, Jacob's his real name, he was able to recognize that the prophecy spoken by Amos was now happening in the Gentile world, in the Greco-Roman world all around them. Gentiles are coming to faith. How do we know this would happen? Prophecy. You know what happened that day? Their faith increased. Because prophecy increases faith. Faith. And so mankind, mankind ultimately beyond Judaism, all of mankind will begin to seek God. That's what the prophets say. And so they trusted and believed. And because they trusted and believed, the gospel continued to spread. God spoke prophetically so that faith would be born in you and in me, and then that faith would be strengthened. Well, verse 30 couple more verses here and we're done. I will not speak much more with you, Jesus says. And he's talking about that night. He's already spoken a lot to them. He's laid a lot of things out before them since chapter 13 began, long about verse 33. And he will continue on, but, but he's, he's winding down. I will not speak much more with you for the ruler of the world is coming and he has nothing in me. I like that. Why does he call him the ruler of this world? The ruler of the world is coming, he says. He calls him that in John 12, 31. He again, in chapter 16, verse 11, you'll hear him refer to the devil as the ruler of this world, and he does it right here. Why? Paul also says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3, 
Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Ruler of this world, the God of this world, how does that work? And if you know your Bible, you know how it works. Adam and Eve gave it up. God created Adam and Eve, put them in the garden, and then commanded them to rule over the earth. And they sinned. And Satan came along, and in that moment, Adam and Eve, they lost the farm, they lost the family, they lost the garden, they lost the whole entire earth to the deception of the devil, and he commandeered authority of the earth. Do you realize that when the devil comes, all, comes along to tempt Jesus... And he says, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Do you realize it was his to give at that time? It was Satan's to give. He was the ruler of the world. I'll give you everything if you just worship me, he said. And Jesus refers to him here as the, the ruler of the world who lied to Adam and Eve and took control from way back then and has had control of this world ever since. 1 John 5, 19 says, we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So why are we so surprised at the news today? Why are we so shocked at the things that we're seeing? It's been veiled, I think, to a degree, the deception and the, and the immorality and the wickedness of the devil. It's been somewhat veiled in America for, for a while. But the veils come off. You know, we're seeing things as they are and we should not be surprised that the world lies in his power currently. It's more painfully clear right now than I've ever seen it in my life. But do not let your heart be troubled nor let it be fearful. John says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, you are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. He may be the ruler of the world, but he's not the ruler of your heart. He is not the ruler of your life. Jesus has that. But note this, he says in verse 30, the ruler of the world is coming. The ruler of the world is coming. When? Right then, right then. Think about what's going on when Jesus says this. Back in chapter 13, verse 27, it says, after the morsel, Satan then entered Judas. In John 13, 30, after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately and it was night. And as Jesus, don't forget what's going on here, the drama of what's happening. As he's encouraging and teaching and building up faith in his apostles, behind the scenes, there in Jerusalem, the march is underway. And it's almost as if Jesus could hear the footfalls of the officers of the chief priests. And according to John chapter 18, verse 3, it's almost as if he could hear a full Roman cohort marching through the streets of Jerusalem when he says, and the ruler of the world is coming. He's coming. In just a moment, Jesus is going to say, let's get out of here. Come on, get up. We got we to leave this place. Because the ruler of the world was coming. Satan in Judas, was on his way to get Jesus. So this is very immediate. I, I gotta tell you something on a side note here. I can't wait till we get to John 18. Check this out. John 18 uses the word cohort for the Romans who are coming with the chief officers of the chief priests. A Roman cohort was coming. Do you know what a cohort is? A cohort was typically, and, and I think John used the word on purpose, a cohort was one-tenth of a legion. 
One-tenth of a legion. A cohort, my friends, is 600 men. And John says a cohort was released to go with the chief priests to get Jesus. <laughs> really? The Bible doesn't just use words loosely. A cohort. Again, 600 men. Why does the devil need a cohort to get Jesus? Because he has nothing in me, Jesus says. He's got nothing in me. In other words, he has no power over Jesus, no manipulation, no coercion, no control, no authority over Jesus. John chapter 10, verse 17, Jesus said, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. Who was in charge of the crucifixion of Jesus? Jesus was. I lay down my life. It's under his authority. He says, no one has taken it away from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Who's in charge? Jesus is. And so the devil's coming for him, but he's got to get 600 men just to surround him and try and take him down. He doesn't know what's going to happen there in the garden, but you know what? Jesus did. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. He was going to give in. He was going to let them, he, by his authority, was going to go to Pilate and the cross. And by the way, remember what he said to Pilate? John chapter 19, verse 11. You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has a greater sin. The ruler of this world is coming, but he has nothing in me, Jesus says. He still has nothing in Jesus. And by the way, if Jesus in, is in you, the devil has nothing in you. That is, he has no authority over you. He has no control of you. He has no ability to manipulate or coerce you unless you let him. He can lie to you. He can try to deceive you. Question is, do we let him? I got Christ in me. The devil has nothing on me. And then he says, but so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up. And let us go from here. And so Jesus is going to the cross by the Father's plan. And that's love. And that's obedience. And that's intimacy. Why would Jesus do all this? Because he loved the Father. And because the Father asked him to do it. And because of the deep intimacy between Father and Son. This is the whole thing back to where we started. Loving him and keeping his commandments will develop intimacy between you and Jesus. It's just going to draw you closer to him. That is how it works. Divine intimacy is experienced in loving obedience. Last thing. Jesus says, get up, let us go from here. And so they leave the upper room. At this moment, we're not done with the teaching. We got chapters 15 and 16 yet, and he's going to pray in chapter 17. But at the end of chapter 14, he's up on his feet and he's saying, let's go which will have great relevance when we get into chapter 15 in just a moment because they're on their way to cross the Kidron Valley and come into the Garden of Gethsemane. And I think Jesus is teaching along the way. But I want to end with this thought. And I've been looking over this and reminded of this going through John 14, 15, and 16. Have you noticed 
that every question from the disciples so far on that night was all about them. Look back at what Jesus said in verse 28. You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father. What, what an intimate thing for him to share. If you guys love me, you wouldn't be all bummed out about yourselves. You'd be happy for me. You'd be rejoicing that I, I get to go home. I'm going to be back in that place of glory. I'm going to be with the Father. But every question that night, and here they are, John 13, 6, Peter said, Lord, do you wash my feet? Or John 13, 25, John says, Lord, who is it? Asking who's going to betray him. They're all worried about that. John 13, 36, Peter says, Lord, where are you going? Verse 37, he says, Lord, why can't I follow you right now? It's all about Peter. John 14, 5, Thomas says, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? We don't know. And it's all about Thomas. John 14, 8, Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. <laughs> John 14, 22, Judas, not Iscariot, says, Lord, what has happened that you're going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Nobody on this night has yet shown any concern for Jesus. I mean, Think for a moment, what was Jesus feeling right now? What's he going through as he's trying to comfort and encourage them and he is staring down the dark hallway to the cross? What's he feeling? Has anybody even asked? It's no wonder they were troubled because when my eyes are on myself, I'm troubled. When my eyes are on Jesus, I'm not troubled. When my eyes are on myself, I'm anxious. When my eyes are on him, I am not distressed. And they all had eyes on themselves. Carson said the failure of these first disciples, sad to say, has often been repeated in the history of the church where Christians have been far more alert to their own griefs and sorrows than to the things that bring their master joy. None of you rejoice because I go to my father? This is the one joy of the night for Jesus. In fact, this is the joy set before him. I've said in the past that you're the joy set before him. Well, perhaps. <laughs> but even greater than that, the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. What was on the other side of the cross for Jesus? His ascension back to the Father. That was joy for him. And none of the apostles were rejoicing in his joy. That's the good part, going to the Father. Hebrews 12, verse 1, let us run with endurance the race set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, not on ourselves, not on our worries, not on how are we going to get through the night, or where are you going, or how can we follow you, just eyes on him. And when our eyes are on him, our hearts are not troubled. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. How do I not grow weary and lose heart in this world? I keep my eyes on Jesus. I look to him. I consider him. This is another key for living an untroubled life, stop focusing on self. 
And as I speak those words, brothers and sisters, I'm not saying it to you. I'm saying it to me. I, I really, boy, I'll tell you what. I really understood how selfish a man I am over this last week. When, when called upon to, to go and to deal with, with this tragedy, and then called upon to go into a graveside service. And, and, and this is, and I, I, I've had a few people ask me, my wife, one of them, are you doing okay? And I can tell you honestly, this has been a heavy week for me. How in the world could I be so selfish as to think this is heavy for me? I'm not the one who lost father and son and husband, or in my case, it would be wife. I'm not the one, and I, I looked at that and I thought about, I'm just, and I'm being transparent, you may want to go to another church after this, but it is what it is. I'm being transparent. It, it shocked me that I even had a momentary thought for myself. And when I thought about myself and thought about how am I going to speak to this and what words, Lord, do I have to say? What do I have to share and offer in such a difficult situation? How do I respond to this? Stop focusing on yourself. When I am self-focused, I'm troubled. And I'll tell you what, this week, the greatest lightness of my heart was recognizing what Jesus had to say to this dear family. Wow, these words, his words, when I look to Jesus, my trouble dissipates. My selfishness goes away, but if I'm focused on me, trouble's there, and trouble will remain. And I do encourage you to think about yourself. How much do you focus on self and when you're troubled, stop for a moment. Maybe let that be a little, a little uh, a hitch, you know, a little click, something that when you're troubled, you go, wait a minute, wait a minute. If I'm troubled, I'm thinking about me and realize how much you're just thinking about you. And if in those moments we can learn to really love him, to turn our eyes to Jesus, it is amazing how trouble vanishes it's amazing how rich and secure are his words spoken to us. Amen? Stop focusing on self. When my heart is Christ-centered, even when trouble comes knocking, I know peace, and I can live in peace. Father, that's what we desire, is to see you, to keep our eyes fixed on you, Jesus. There are so many things in this life that are troubling. And honestly, Lord, when we stop and realize that so many of these troubling things are insignificant, they're superficial, they're selfish and self-centered and, and shameful. And I love looking at you because Jesus, you change everything. Suddenly when I'm looking at you, the problems I've created in my life go away. And Jesus, we need eyes to see you. We need those eyes of faith. Eyes of faith to love you more, to hold fast to your word. There's such a wonderful dynamic in holding fast, keeping your word, having your commandments that makes us love you all the more. And Lord, we desire that intimacy. I know we're limited by these fleshly bodies, but, and, I, and I know the day is coming when we will be with you, but even here and now, you've made your abode 
Father, Son, and Spirit in my heart, would you keep my eyes fixed on you and help me to love like you love? May I be humble like you are humble? And may the way before me be absolutely clear because, Jesus, my eyes are on you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.